that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it's not really a matter that people won't come to him. They won't, but they also can't. Hey everyone, welcome back to Pathema. This is Courtney May. Today we're going to be talking a lot about limited atonement and just the reformed beliefs in general. So I hope this gives you some understanding of why I truly believe these to be biblical doctrines. Mainly supporting limited atonement because it is something I struggle deeply with. I couldn't get past the fact that he might not have died for everybody because I had grown up hearing that every single Sunday. So this was a really hard one for me and I hope that if you are in find yourself in the same situation I was in that this would help you. Hi everyone, I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you have been having a great week so far. Hopefully better than mine. I've honestly been pretty bedridden lately, but that's okay. It's, you know, God is sovereign and I'm having to just keep reminding myself that as I'm struggling on a daily basis. But if you're in the same boat as me, if you're dealing with something that is just absolutely miserable and you are struggling to be close to God in it, I totally can relate. I'm not always perfect in the slightest. I mean, I struggle on a daily basis and um, sometimes it's harder than others. Like this week, I personally just could not enjoy reading scripture because I had honestly a little bit, <laughs> if I'm being honest, I've overloaded myself lately in the past few months with scripture and it's just become a habit that I wasn't actually doing out of a love for God, but more out of just, I don't know if I would say guilt, but it was more so just... I felt like I needed to because I deeply wanted to enjoy it, but I just wasn't. So I was just forcing myself to do something that wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't in the right mindset, I guess. I was doing it more for myself than for Christ. And I don't know if you're in that situation or if you just are struggling to enjoy the word of God, but let me tell you, like the biggest thing you can do if you're in that situation is just to pray that God would reignite that in you, that he would take this away from you and honestly repent that you, you're not treating scripture or you're not treating prayer um, or just communion with God uh, with any reverence like you should be or without any passion because you know it's not what he deserves and you want to be different and, you know, just be sanctified and know that that, like be made new you know and we're not going to be perfect on this side of heaven like I always say um so don't beat yourself up and I'm not saying you know how much you should be in the word of God or how much you should pray but for me personally when I'm going through this stuff with my health um because I have a chronic illness I really rely on the word of God so it's a daily thing for me and I think it's biblical to make it a daily thing, but I understand some people are in different circumstances and I'm not sitting here to condemn or judge anyone, but I do want to encourage you in that if you're feeling pulled that way because it's one of the most impactful things you can do, especially regarding your faith, because how can you worship a God that you don't even know? So honestly, if you're new in your faith or if you just feel like you're not living in accordance to how God has called you to or you just don't feel right with God, I deeply want to encourage you um, to seek him in scripture, through prayer, um, and to humble yourself before him, honestly, because we really... <laughs> Even spiritually, like we are nothing without Christ. He's the one who fills us with his spirit and changes us into a new person. We have no no power, really. It's not us who does it. It's him who regenerates our hearts. And we need to constantly be thankful for that. And just 
love God for who he is and it's not easy to do that all, all the time, especially when things are rough. So I just wanna start off with that because it's just my heart lately and um, not that I'm like doing anything terribly against him, but it's just something's wrong in my heart, like my heart posture towards him. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but maybe that's for somebody listening, I don't know. Anywho, I just hope and pray that you'll get out of that and get through it with Christ. So don't try to work your way, you know, through that alone because he's the one who empowers us and strengthens us to be right with him in all honesty. Like, it's not up to you. Like, you are never going to have the strength without him. So rely upon him and trust that this is what he wants and he will help you through it. So yeah, with that being said, I do want to get into the actual topic of this uh, episode because I have been deeply, if you guys don't know, I am reformed, meaning I am basically, I have Calvinistic views of um, how we come to salvation in Christ, which means that I don't believe that we actually seek God. I don't believe that anybody is good before God. I think that the only reason if we have sought God is because we are one of his elect. I mean, and I mean like truly sought God for the right purposes, not for um, prosperity or just, you know, selfish means. I mean, genuinely seeking God because you want to repent. You feel bad for what you've done and you know he's genuinely the savior of your soul. So, I'm here to say um, and kind of answer the question, um, at least my view on this, is that did Jesus simply make us savable? Were we potentially saved by his work on the cross or did he actually save us? Like, did he actually do it on the cross or did he just make it a potential, like a possibility that I'm going to die and then leave it up to them if they want to actually, you know, take advantage of that? Like, I'm going to put this down here and, you know, they have to come to the, they have to come and accept it. Well, I'm not exactly saying that we don't accept that and we are, or that we're forced to accept that, but I am going to say that we're not made simply savable. When we read throughout the New Testament, even in the Old, we see that Jesus did this for a reason and he didn't come to make it possible. He didn't come to make it a possibility and make us have to kind of partner with him because him dying on the cross wasn't enough to completely take our sins. We have to actually have faith as well. I guess what I'm saying is obviously, yes, we have to have faith for that to be true. But what if he actually died for those who would be saved? Like he didn't die for just the entire world, but he actually died for a specific people who he came to save. Now, why on earth would I claim this? Because that's kind of nuts if you've grown up in the same environment that I have, never hearing this kind of stuff. I grew up in a non-denominational background where, generally speaking, or at least in the type of non-denominational churches I've been in, they have not been reformed. They have basically the normal, more popular teaching is that Jesus died for the entire world, right? John 3.16, it says he died for the world. That's just black and white, he died for the world. I have come to the understanding that it doesn't actually mean every literal person in the world because if you think about it, okay, Jesus dies on the cross taking on the sins of every single person in the world. So those are paid for. All those sins are paid for. The sin of unbelief is paid for. Every single sin in the world is paid for. Okay, well now how can he righteously send someone to hell if they've already had their sin paid for? Why would they need to go to hell if 
they've already had their sin paid for. So that's just kind of the logical argument behind this, but I'm going to give you, obviously, Bible verses and why I think the Bible claims this and why it's true, because obviously we should not make deductions from things that are just based off of, you know, our own reasoning. That's irrational and unbiblical to just do that alone. I'm not saying it can't be useful, but it's more important to go to scripture and see what the authors of scripture, which ultimately was the Holy Spirit, was God himself, actually says about this. So, we know in Ephesians, right? Ephesians 2.1 says that we are completely dead in our trespasses and sins, which would mean that we're unable to make ourselves alive or change. We're actually spiritually dead. And that's my belief. I truly think that the word dead there means that we can't make ourselves alive. We're dead in our sins. We're spiritually dead. And the only way to become alive in Christ is for Christ to make you born again before anything else. We can't see the kingdom of God without being born again, like it says in John 3. John also writes about the fact that he died for the sheep. He laid down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for the sheep, and the sheep will hear his voice. So, that would refer, that would mean that Jesus didn't die for those who would not hear his voice, right? If he died for the sheep, those who would hear his voice, then how come we think that he died for the entirety of the world? Now, let me read you Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved. Now he chose us in him. Who is him? Jesus Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That means before you were created, before Adam and Eve was created, before the world, the entire world was created, he chose you to become holy and blameless in love before him. And he predestined us to be adopted as sons. So that means if you have been adopted as a child of God, right? We've been brought in to Christ. We've been brought into the family of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ because we have the Holy Spirit. If we've truly had saving faith, we've truly repented of our sins. It says also that repentance is granted. This isn't something that we muster up on our own because that would also be a work. And we know that the Bible says it's not of works, but of grace that we are saved. It is completely grace. There's nothing that we do to deserve it ourselves. There's nothing we muster up so that we're better than other people who haven't realized this truth. The only reason that we have believed this truth is because of grace. It's not because you have some more intellect than others. No, we're all sheep. You know what sheep are? Sheep are idiots. Like, (laughs) it's funny because you see so many like cute little, oh, you know, we're like sheep and stuff like on cute t-shirts and whatnot and it's like do you know what a sheep is like sheeps like sheep okay I can't even I'm literally calling them sheeps and I'm talking about intellect and how we don't have intellect clearly I don't because I just called them sheeps oh my goodness gracious lord help me um (laughs) so yeah sheep need a shepherd they just wander around they get lost they don't know what they're doing they'd get killed if they didn't have a shepherd they're basically sheep are idiots like to be frank jesus when he said that he was calling us idiots that need a leader like that need a shepherd to guide us into the gate you know so not to mention i mean have you read romans 3 romans 3 11 says that no one seeks after god so 
how can we come to saving faith without God's intervention before we come to him? Like if we, if everyone is seeking after God, then why is that directly in contrast with scripture? You know what I mean? Like these are the things that started to tug at my heart and God was, I truly believe God was prodding my heart about this because it's like, I thought that I was seeking God my whole life. But when you read that, you know, I mean, no one seeks after God. You know, it says this in the Psalms and stuff. They're talking about the Israelites. But if you think that that's not talking about you either, I mean, you're just being naive, honestly, because the Israelites literally are us. Like, I don't care what you say, um, but if you read through the entirety of the Old Testament and say that, oh, I wouldn't do that, like, you gotta have some humility because that's exactly what we would do. Nobody seeks after God and nobody is good. Not one. So this is why, I mean, in Ezekiel, it says that our hearts are stone, you know, and we need to be given hearts of flesh that truly would seek after Christ. So without a spiritual rebirth, like I've already said, I mean, that's what Jesus and Nicodemus were talking about, right? In John 3, it says that he's talking to Nicodemus and he's saying, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't even perceive. You know, when it says see in the Bible, it literally can be translated as perceive. Like you can't comprehend, you can't perceive, you can't see. You can't see or perceive the kingdom of God because you haven't been born again, right? This is literally the what does being born again mean okay born again is a second birth obviously that means born a second time but again the word in greek actually means born above so it means born from above which is absolutely wild because it truly is talking about a spiritual rebirth i mean the more direct translation is literally born above if you have to be born above and nicodemus of course is like what do you mean i have to do that i can't do that like um, I didn't have any control over my natural birth. You think I can have any control over my spiritual birth? And this is honestly, like, if we can't even see God, the kingdom of God, if we can't perceive it without being born again, why do we think that we can see that we are sinners, repent, and have faith all before we are born again? It doesn't make sense. And I've just come to this conclusion that, you know, Reformed theology has it right. I truly, I, I'm firmly a believer of this now because it's like, we can't come to God. We're actually depraved. Like, we're not just slightly depraved. We are completely depraved and would not seek after God unless he intervened, changing our hearts, which then in turn, it doesn't mean he forces us to believe in him. It's not, it doesn't mean we come kicking and screaming into heaven. No, we, he changes your heart to see the truth. He grants you repentance of your sin so that your eyes are open to what you really are, so that your heart is of flesh, so that you repent. It's not that he forces you to repent. He just changes the root of your the issue, the fact that you're a sinner. He allows you to actually look in a mirror and see it, like see clearly. The eyes of your hearts are enlightened, it says in scripture. And that's crazy, like truly, to know that we are not worthy we are not deserving and that he truly came god the father wanted to save the elect this is seen all throughout the old testament all through the coming of the messiah he wants to save his people right jesus comes and he and also i mean in the old testament it talks about the gentiles being brought in this isn't something that jesus just comes to do and without the father's permission or without us knowing that the father also wants this so the gentiles if you don't know means us basically people who aren't jews allowing them to be into 
the kingdom of God because initially when you read the Old Testament, it's the Jews. It's all the Jews. God choose, chose Israel. And was that unfair that he just chose Israel? No, because we all don't deserve that at all. We don't deserve to be chosen by God. So there's, it's not a fact of it being unfair that he wanted to save a certain people group because it's just grace in itself. We don't deserve that. So whoever he wants to save, that's God. I mean, there's a certain part of this that we just never will understand. And a lot of people have a problem with this theology because they don't like the idea that some people never have a chance. But I would argue that we all had a chance in a way. I mean, I know we were all born into sin, but I think at the end of the day, we all know if we were Adam and Eve, we would have sinned as well. Like, I think there's, in scripture, it just is clear that humans are fallen regardless of being born into sin. We all would have chosen evil and that was, like, that's our punishment. God would not be just in forcing us to sin and then saying, okay, now I'm going to go punish you. No, he made humans. They sinned. That gave birth to sin in all the other humans. I have to argue, like I said, that we all would have sinned just like Adam and Eve because God's fair, so it doesn't make sense otherwise, you know? Like, this is just our just punishment, and the fact that he would allow grace and to save some people, that is incredible. I mean, that's amazing grace that he would die for his elect, the ones he predestined to salvation before the creation of the world. And like it says, I mean, it was the sheep that he died for. It wasn't the entirety of the world. And when it talks about the entire world, the reason why they keep say world and the emphasis on world, I mean, there's so many other times in scripture when it uses the word world to refer to a large people group and a group of people that is including the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, Jesus says in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, understand it hated me before it hated you. Now, is Jesus referring to every single human being on planet Earth? Well, no, because I mean, when we look in the epistles, there were some followers of the apostles that the entire world didn't hate them, right? So he's being a little like, obviously world doesn't mean black and white every single human being. And there's countless other verses like this where it refers to world as not being every single human being on planet Earth. <laughs> so it just doesn't make sense for this stuff to be there. Like I've been saying about the sheep, in John chapter 10, it says the sheep hear his voice in verse three. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now. Jesus claims to be the gate for the sheep, not the gate for the world, but the gate for the sheep. All who came before him are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to the thieves and robbers. I am the gate. If anyone enter enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Now it says that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the those who hear his voice, not for those who don't hear his voice, who never will hear his voice. He lays down his life for the sheep. And he says this like three times that he, actually two times in this passage. And it says that you don't believe because you aren't my sheep. Did you catch that? People don't believe because they are not the ones that Jesus died for. I know this is crazy. If you haven't heard this ever before, I know this seems not fair but if you want fairness 
we all deserve to burn in hell. <laughs> like, to be quite blunt, you cannot argue that this is unfair because it's grace. Grace isn't, the whole point of grace is the fact that it isn't what we deserve. It is not unfair for God to send people to hell. It is completely okay for him to have grace on those he chooses and to save them. It's all throughout John, honestly, is a huge part of this um, theology. It says that everyone the Father gives to Jesus will come to him, and the one who comes to him he will never cast out. The will of the Father is that Jesus should lose none of those that the Father has given to him, but that he should raise them up on the last day. Now, the fact that it says that everyone the Father gives to me will come to me, that obviously means that, well, okay, does everybody come to Jesus? No, Courtney, not everybody comes to Jesus. Okay, so that would mean that the Father only gave Jesus some people. Because if the Father gave everyone to Jesus, right, if he said, go lay your life down for every single human being, then this verse would make no sense because it says, everyone that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. The point of this, of the Father doing this, is that Jesus should lose no one who the Father has given to him, but that he should raise them up on the last day. So the ones the Father gives to him are those who will believe in Christ. The will of the Father is to save his elect. That's what this is saying, that the intention of Christ is this. And it also says later in John 6, 44, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it's not really a matter that people won't come to him. They won't, but they also can't. Because only if the Father draws him, then will they come to him. So that's the will of God. And the point of this is that how could God have given Jesus everybody? It doesn't align with this. And I mean, you can twist it as much as you want to say that the father, well, the father wanted Jesus to die for everyone, but it's like, you can't find that anywhere in scripture. I don't care what you say, but that's not anywhere in scripture. Nowhere does it say that the father wishes that every single human being on the planet would be saved. It's just not there. And yes, it says that he wishes that all would come to repentance, but you, how can you argue that that all refers to everybody? I mean, we can be talking about a classroom of people, and then we say all. They all were doing this. Do you think I'm talking about the entire world when I say they all were doing this? No, you're you're gonna probably conclude I'm talking about a certain people group, a certain group of people. So it's a tricky one. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That's referring to the fact that makes it sound like those who don't come to Jesus were not drawn by the father, meaning the father didn't intend to save everybody. It's very set in stone that if the father gives him somebody, gives Jesus somebody, they will come to him. They actually will. It's not a matter of, well, they might, um, you know, it's up to, it's their free will. They will choose to, they can choose to come to him or not. Actually, yeah, we do have free will and we all don't choose to come to him. So the father has to literally give Jesus his elect, say, these are the people for my salvation. Now go die on a cross and obtain this for them. 
save them from their sin and I will change their hearts to love and adore you, to see themselves for who they are. I will grant them repentance so that they will turn and their hearts would not be of stone anymore, but that they would be of flesh and they can truly become new people because I'm going to put my spirit in them. The law will be written on their hearts. It no longer will be a letter. It'll be written on you. It'll actually be you. You are the witness of who Christ is, you know, and that's why this is so incredible because it's, it shows that this was not for everybody. This wasn't a potential. This was an actual thing that was accomplished. God didn't just simply give you the opportunity. He actually raised you from the grave of spiritual death. He has given you so much grace because you didn't even do anything. Like, you actually did not do a single thing to obtain your salvation. You did not repent. You didn't choose to repent. God changed your heart so that you would repent. It's not that he didn't give you a choice. He did give you a choice, and you didn't choose him. So he changed your heart. He changed your hardened heart to actually love and see God for who he is, how worthy he is. And that is irresistible grace, my friend. That is what it means. It doesn't mean that he's forcing us into heaven. He just changed your heart so that you could actually seek him instead of be hardened to who he is. This is why you're a Christian. This is why you believe in Jesus. This is why you would be willing to die for the sake of the gospel and testimony of Jesus Christ because it's all that matters. This isn't something that's part of your life. It is the foundation of your entire existence. Like this is no little thing, my friend. Like this is huge. This is incredible. I mean, God actually had his elect in mind. Jesus and the Father were one. He went to the cross to a do what the Father asked him to do. He, in complete obedience, he died and he reconciled us to him on that cross. The action of doing that actually accomplished something. It didn't make something possible. It physically accomplished the salvation of the elect. That would come to pass, obviously, in the life of the elect and in the future, but it was obtained on that cross. So, Hopefully this gave you some idea of what it means, the whole point of limited atonement, the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and that we truly were not just given a potential way of salvation. We were actually saved, reconciled to God because of what Jesus did on the cross. He didn't do it for every single human being on earth because quite frankly, none of us deserve that. And the Father's intention was to save his elect to be predestined. It's clear that there is a certain people group in the Bible that is referred to as the elect. He knew the elect before they did anything. If you read in Romans 9, this is a great, great testimony in a way of what I'm talking about. Now, Romans 9 talks about the fact that God will show mercy on who he will show mercy on and he will have compassion on whom he has compassion on. This is a reference to the time of Moses in Egypt and it does not depend on human will or effort but on God who shows mercy. So it does not depend on human 
effort to come to salvation. It depends on God's mercy. Scripture tells us when referring to Pharaoh that God raised him up for this reason so that God would display his power in him and that his name would be proclaimed in the entire earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens who he wants to harden. So this is actually showing us that he does harden the hearts of some, that some he just allows to be hardened. And then, I mean, you know, Paul goes on to say, okay, well, then you're going to say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist the will of God? On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter have no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction. And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on the objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand? There it is again, for glory. So if you didn't catch all that, what God's saying is, are you really going to argue with me if I want to allow one lump of clay, some people, to be basically dealt with? to have patience with these people so that I could make my power known to those who I actually decide to have mercy on. Are you really going to tell me this is what to do and that this is unjust? If I want to do this, you're simply the creation. Who are you to talk back to your creator? I raised up some for the purpose of my glory to display mercy and the riches of who I am, if I use people to show my glory, so be it, basically, is what he says. Because he is worthy. We are not worthy. But he has died allowing us to obtain glory. And at the end of the day, you if you believe in Christ, you are the elect. Don't think that, oh, I'm not going to believe in Christ because how could I be that how could I be the elect how could I how could God have given mercy to me and I get that I totally get that because I don't there's nothing I can offer God except the fact that I am simply a vessel to be used by him I have nothing I bring nothing to the cross but my sin so if you feel sorrow a godly sorrow for your sin if you feel you are drawn to repent because you know you've sinned against a holy God who deserves nothing but glory, respect, and honor, but you've done nothing but revile him, use his name in vain, and disobey every single one of his commandments, then repent and thank him for his mercy. Thank him for granting you repentance and drawing you to himself because Jesus truly was God in the flesh. He said that before Abraham was, I am. And that's a reference to what God said about himself. He said, I am the I am. (laughs) So Jesus was saying, I existed before Abraham. I am the one you're speaking of. I am the Messiah. So for people to claim that he never claimed to be God or that he somehow emptied his deity is absurd if he was not god in the flesh who was this man to claim that he was dying for the sins of those he wished to save so hopefully this makes sense to you i'm sorry if this offends you but i truly 
don't know what else to tell you. I'm simply just explaining what I've found in the scriptures. And I know this is something that a lot of people probably won't agree with or come to um, a conclusion of. However, in doing my research on this, I truly cannot see it any other way. It just doesn't make sense. The scriptures don't line up. And there's just some, some verses you have to twist a lot to stick to the other, um, the Arminian view of this, which would be the opposite, um, what I explained prior, that I was, um, I believed prior to actually studying scripture and studying predestination, studying election, studying all this and what it really meant for Jesus to die on the cross. So God bless you guys. Um, I hope this helps somebody. I'm going to be putting a blog post up about this. So if you want to read more um, and see the verses I'm referring to in more depth, um, a deeper argument for this point, um, feel free to check that out. It's on thethema.org. Thank you guys. Have a blessed day.